Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This edition of Payne's Politics was recorded before the news of the murder of Conservative MP Sir David Amos, who died after being stabbed at his constituency surgery in Essex on Friday. A testy war of words broke out in Whitehall this week over whether the UK is facing energy shortages and whether it's time for the Treasury to intervene. We've got a security of supply, we've got flowing uh, sources of gas uh, and electricity, we've got a diversity in terms of our electricity generation mix, we've got a bit of nuclear, we've got renewables, uh, we've got gas. And through that mix, I think we've got a, a great deal of resilience. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at the latest UK shortages, as you heard the Business Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng discuss at the top. Should the government be doing more to save energy companies? What's going to happen with prices? And is the Treasury going to intervene? Political editor George Parker and chief political correspondent Jim Picard will take us into the corridors of power. And later, we'll be returning to Brexit and how to resolve the issue of the controversial Northern Ireland Protocol. Can the UK and the EU find a resolution that meets both of their red lines and just how bad are relations at the moment? Public policy editor Peter Foster will analyse along with special guest Georgina Wright from the Institute Montaigne. With plenty to discuss, let's dive straight into the main topic of the week. Who or what is to blame for the UK's energy shortages? Is it the government for failing to have the proper infrastructure? Or is it a global supply problem that the UK is particularly exposed to? And is the government doing enough? All these questions have been bouncing around Whitehall this week, particularly between the Treasury and the Department for Business, who have engaged in a rather unedifying and testy briefing war about whether the state should be doing more to help energy companies in peril. The Chancellor Rishi Sunak insisted the problems are not only facing the UK, as he told Sky News. We're doing absolutely everything we can to mitigate some of these challenges. They are global in nature, so we can't fix every single problem. But I feel confident that there'll be good provision of goods for everybody. And we are working our way to remove blockages where we can. Well, George Parker, and great to have you on. You're actually on a train at the moment, so I'm sure our listeners can uh, enjoy the background noise as you head down to the West Country there. What's the background to this dispute this week? We know that energy prices have been increasing, lots of companies have been going bankrupt, and the price of natural gas is soaring. So what is it, what is it exactly that Rishi Sunak is not doing that Kwasi Kwarteng wants him to? Well, the precise um, argument this week was around the issue of energy intensive companies, companies that use a lot of power in their industrial processes. So talking about companies like steelworks, paper manufacturing, ceramics, fertilizers, things like that. And basically they're saying because of the massive spike in the wholesale price of gas, they're facing crippling costs and therefore wouldn't it be good if the government could help them out over the next few months. 
And basically, that's the view that Quasi Quateng is taking. He's saying that these are strategically vital industries to the UK and the government has a duty to help them out through these extraordinary times. But the Treasury's view is, look, market forces, uh, as as Rishi Sunak said this week, uh, are what should apply here. The companies should have done more to protect themselves against the eventuality of high gas prices. And therefore, should the state intervene? And in fact, um, Steve Barclay, a former Treasury minister, made the point this week that Essentially, the companies were asking the government to nationalise their losses while privatising their profits. So that's the backdrop to this particular row. And as a consequence, what you're seeing is the Treasury coming up with a sort of rescue scheme to help these companies, but frankly, one which the companies would rather was more generous. It looks like it's going to be a series of state-backed loans rather than what they hoped for, which was a series of grants that they wouldn't have to pay back. Well, Jim Picard, it's a rather interesting practical and ideological question here, isn't it? Because obviously people like Kwasi Kwarteng and Rishi Sunak are both free market conservatives here. Yet you've got a prime minister in Boris Johnson who does not think in that particular way. And I guess there's a practical thing and a theoretical thing here. You know, you want as least disruption as possible. They want to keep prices as low as possible throughout the winter. At the same time, um, they don't want to be propping up zombie companies. It is interesting because Rishi Sunak and Kwasi Kwarteng have lots in common. You know, they're both Brexiteers. They both went to top public schools. They are both, in theory, fiscal hawks. There's only a cigarette paper between them in terms of sort of political philosophy. But one thing we've discovered in recent years is that no matter how free marketeer you are, when you're in charge of the business department during a crisis, often that goes out the window. And I remember it so clearly with Sajid Javid when Tata Steel threatened to close down his steelworks in South Wales with thousands and thousands of jobs on the line. And do you remember Sajid Javid was in Sydney giving a speech about the merits of, of free markets? And he's a guy who cites Ayn Rand, the free market philosopher, as, as a book he reads every year. And yet in the teeth of seeing all these steelworkers potentially losing their jobs, he had to scurry back to Britain, resolve that crisis and provide um, you know, solutions to that. And we see that with Kwasi Kwarteng as well, where he was, you know, a great free marketeer. He wrote a pamphlet, you'll remember a decade ago, along with people like Liz Truss and Dominic Raab, basically, you know, calling for the shackles to be taken off free markets. And yet, as a junior energy minister, he found himself you know, convinced of the need for government intervention for us to hit our carbon targets. And you can see that continuing as business secretary in charge of the department. I mean, it reminds me a bit of the, the old expression that, that you don't get atheists in a in a foxhole in a war. You know, free marketeers faced with big industries with loads of jobs, especially in red wall seeds. Let's not forget the politics of this often change their minds. And I think Boris Johnson, goodness knows what his political or economic philosophy is. But one thing we've seen recently is that he's very good at closing down knotty issues when they make the headlines day in, day out. Well, an example of this ideological flexibility is the energy price cap. Now, for listeners with longer memories, they'll remember this was an Ed Miliband idea, I think, in 2013, the run-up to the 2015 election. He said it would bring in this cap to protect consumers from soaring energy prices. At the time, it was decried as a Marxist trap and a way of distorting the free market. And yep, Theresa May um, implemented it, I think, in 2017. And then this week, Kwasi Kwarteng was out on the radio saying it was a wonderful thing. The price cap is the biggest uh, shield uh, in terms of consumer prices. And I've said repeatedly that it will not be moved. It was set in August for the sixth month period between the 1st of October and the 1st of April. 
uh, and it's not being moved. And I'd like to add that many companies during this period have said we should uh, lift the price cap or get rid of it. Well, George, there's obviously pressure on that price cap because of soaring energy costs. And companies are saying, look, if you don't get rid of this, we're going to go bankrupt. And we've seen some going bankrupt there. But the obvious question is going to be, yes, it's going to stay where it is until April. But almost certainly the cap will have to be raised at that point. Yeah, that's right. The cap rose by £139 on the 1st of October. And because of the soaring cost of wholesale gas prices, it looks like it's going to go up by a further £280 in April which is obviously going to be bad news for consumers, but frankly, it won't be enough to cover the costs of the energy suppliers. And the, basically, there's, there's a good reason why the Treasury and other parts of the Conservative government were anxious about Ed Miliband's plan for a, for a price cap, which is basically you are distorting the market. And as I mentioned earlier, Rishi Sunak, who was in Washington this week, was saying he believed in market forces. Now, if you're going to protect consumers from the real price of their energy, then that means the burden of subsidise them effectively falls on the energy companies themselves. Now, ministers are keeping their fingers crossed that the companies and their shareholders will be able to bear that burden through the winter. But if they don't or are unable to, and you end up with more companies going bust or even big companies unable to honour their contracts, then in the end, the government has to intervene. And that's the nightmare, I guess, stalking ministers in the Treasury as they try to keep public spending under control ahead of a budget on October the 27th. Now, Jim, let's just look exactly at what this dispute that's gone on between the Treasury and the Department for Business, or Bays, as it tends to be known. The Quasi Quartan gave an interview last weekend where he said there were negotiations between the two departments ongoing about this issue. And even before the interviews ended, there was some briefing that appeared on social media from shadowy tre- Treasury sources, as it's often said in Whitehall language, saying that essentially he'd made things up and also said this was not the first time that the Bays said had gone on TV and made things up here. And then a couple of days later, Downing Street did confirm that there had been negotiations. So what's your reading on exactly what's been going on here? So I think one reason why everyone was startled by this is because it's very rare for someone to be spinning quite that aggressively on behalf of, of their master in politics. I mean, we presume it wasn't Rishi Sunak himself saying this to journalists. And to be so aggressive and hostile against a colleague, and so quickly as well, this happened within minutes of Kwasi Kwarteng speaking. And I think it reflects that anxiety in the Treasury right now. We've got the spending review and budget coming up in just a few days. Rishi Sunak is determined to get government spending under control after forking out around $400 billion during the COVID crisis. And Basically, he's trying to be fiscally hawkish and remind colleagues that there is not an unlimited supply of money, as Theresa May once called it, the the magic money tree. And I remember when the intervention happened, I think, three and a half weeks ago, where this fertilizer business, CF Fertilizers, they stopped producing ammonia, the byproduct of which is carbon dioxide. And do you remember, the company themselves were surprised to find out that this basically meant that the fizzy drinks industry was in trouble the abattoir industry was in trouble because they used CO2 to stun animals before slaughtering them and all these sort of unknown side effects. And the government stepped in then with a £30 million rescue package for CF fertilisers. Rishi Sunak is said to have been quite uncomfortable about the precedent that that would set. And I remember at the time thinking and saying, well, it probably makes sense to close down this, this clearly difficult political and economic issue. But once you do it with one company, what is there to stop other companies stepping forward and saying, we need help to deal with high energy prices, otherwise we're going to go bust. And 
it's very, very hard for people sitting in Whitehall or Westminster to assess which of these people begging for money deserves it and which one is rather taking the mickey and taking us for a ride. And, and we are entering the phase where there's going to be an awful lot of people asking the government for money. But that's the thing, George, because we're obviously coming up to budget season very soon and not just any budget. We've got the big multi-year spending review, which will allocate um, who in Whitehall has got what money. And I think Rishi Sunak has been desperately trying to keep spending requests down, as the Treasury and Chancellor always does, which is made much harder by the fact you've got a prime minister who just wants to spend. And I think remember Rishi Sunak joked in a TV interview he was taking away Boris Johnson's credit card, which was, I think, a sign of the tensions there. And those are tensions you always get but it does feel we're at this moment particularly with the energy issue which is true is affecting a lot of companies but Rishi Sunak is very much trying to hold the line here he's worried about inflation and interest rates ticking up and having a big you know creating big problems for the UK's debt pile do you think there's any chance he's going to reopen the spending envelope here or is he going to be able to hold the line and try and keep a relatively tight fiscal framework well, I think the um, the dispute between Kwasi Kwarteng and Rishi Sunak was a sort of precursor for what's going to be a very difficult two weeks for Rishi Sunak because, as you say, Seb, he's going to be under a lot of pressure to relax the spending envelope, as it's called, slightly at least in the run-up to the budget by Boris Johnson to alleviate pressures in a number of areas, whether it's the cost of living crisis or whether it's helping companies struggling with high energy bills, you know, just to try and get the government through the winter. While Boris Johnson was this week in Marbella, sort of painting and lying by the pool, Rishi Sunak was in Washington with fellow finance ministers and central bank governors, agonising over the prospects of rising inflation and the prospect of rising interest rates. And Rishi Sunak's calculation is that if interest rates rise by one percentage point, then that will cost him £25 billion a year. That would blow a huge hole in the public finances, which are already, as he says, exposed. Now, I think the tension will arise because over the next couple of weeks, we'll get the final uh, forecasts before the budget by the Independent Office for Budget Responsibility. And it seems quite likely that they will reduce at least a little bit, maybe not a huge amount, their estimate of the amount of long-term damage caused to the economy by uh, COVID. And the key thing is that um, if there's even a few billion pounds to spare in inverted commas, then I think Boris Johnson will be keen for that money to be spent in government priority areas. So I think that's going to be difficult for Rishi Sunak, who just wants to keep spending under control. And finally, Jim, what, what kind of things do you think we should be looking at in terms of the budget and what is going to go? It's obviously still got a good two weeks before we've got it on the 27th of October, but there is so much in there because, as George said, there's going to be the question of the structural scarring that COVID has done to the economy. You've got the levelling up question about how much money is going to be put into the various funds to help address those regional inequalities that Boris Johnson has set as now the defining mission for his government. You've also got the long-term rail plan as well where we're expecting more so-called northern powerhouse rail is there anything else i've missed there um you're absolutely right we've got a very busy few days coming up we have a whole load of documents coming out on monday on net zero which is clearly a massive part of the government's economic plan there's going to be from the business department a sort of macro net zero plan there's going to be a treasury document saying how much this will all cost and whether it's going to fall in an even way on different demographic groups and there was an interim report by the treasury last december warning that low-income households are going to take a disproportionate share of the cost of putting net zero and heat and building strategy i think which is going to have this 2035 ban on gas boilers so we have got that we also have the, the as you say the railway plan coming out 
possibly a few days later, and we think that there will be the details of how they're going to do HS3, which is the, the new railway line between Manchester and Leeds, with maybe a spur down to Bradford. The side effect of that is that HS2 will not be completed in the current form that we know. We don't think it's, at, it's actually going to quite on the eastern leg make it up as far as uh, Leeds, which was the original plan. And yes, the budget itself, uh, we've been sort of guided that the actual budget will not have many major macro fiscal decisions. We think things like the business rate review, which has been going on for ages, is it's going to be kicked into the long grass. But it's the spending review where we get to see the real plan, the real priorities decided. And, you know, as we've seen in, in spending reviews over the last decade or so, every time you basically ring fence health and pour more money into health, then other areas get get hit. And, you know, we've seen aid get hit. I think we're going to see local government taking more pain. You know, we'd probably blow inflation rises if that. And justice again getting squeezed. And it's some of those smaller departments where, you know, the pips are quite likely to be squeaking once again. And finally, George, what do you think about the potential political impact of all this disruption on Boris Johnson? Because as we talked about in last week's podcast, we've just gone through party conference season where everything was very upbeat and boosterous and talking about the great future. And then you look at this week and you've the, the fuel shortage seems to have mostly abated now. But there's still big questions about people shortage for HGV drivers in food production on farms. And you have to wonder with this energy thing, how worried is Downing Street and how worried is Boris Johnson that this is going to be, to use that dreaded phrase, a winter of discontent? Well, I think as we've discussed before, this is not quite the same as 1978 and 79, which I'm sadly old enough to remember. Um, inflation then was about 10% and um, bodies weren't being buried because there was a grave digger's strike. But, you know, things are looking very difficult for the government. But I think, you know, to your question, Seb, I think there is a difference in perception between number 10 and number 11 about how serious that is. And I think that's down to the personalities of the protagonists. Boris Johnson is someone who thinks that Rishi worries, Rishi Sunak worries rather too much about things like inflation. In fact, in an interview earlier this month, he said that fears about inflation were unfounded. Whereas the Chancellor, I think, probably has wakes up in a cold sweat sometimes worrying about inflation and the prospect of higher interest rates. So, yeah, I mean, there's a difference in personality, a difference in approach. And I think that will play out over the next couple of weeks, which, as I said, I think we will see some tough discussions between number 10 and number 11, some tensions arising as the budget day approaches. George and Jim, thank you very much. It's all felt very 2019 in Westminster this week as Brexit is back. A war of words has broken out between London and Brussels as both sides set out their plans to deal with the contentious Northern Ireland Protocol that's part of the withdrawal agreement. To the surprise of many, the EU appeared to put forward some quite substantive proposals that would significantly ease the trading checks and barriers in the province. Maros Setkovic, the EU's Brexit commissioner, was hopeful that his proposals would do the trick. Now I invite the UK government to engage with us earnestly and intensively on all our proposals. With them, I am convinced we could be in the home stretch when it comes to the protocol. It is my hope that uh, in the coming weeks we will jointly arrive at an agreed uh, uh, solution that Northern Ireland truly deserves. Thank you. 
Well, Peter Foster, it's a delight to have you back as always. Before we go into what the EU Commission was talking about there, just give us a quick bit of background about why we're talking about Northern Ireland again in Brexit terms and what the protocol is and why it needs reworking. So going right back to first principles, we need to remember why we have the protocol. We have the protocol to avoid a return to a border, trade border on the island of Ireland between Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, and the Republic of Ireland, which is part of the European Union. So to avoid that border, it was agreed by Boris Johnson and David Frost that there would essentially be a trade border in the Irish Sea, put the border back into the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and that would require all goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland to basically follow the rules of the Union Customs Code. So the protocol contains a long list, an annex full of a long list of EU rules and regulations and laws that all goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland must follow. And it also required the European Union's top court, because we're following European Union rules, to adjudicate on matters of EU law for the protocol. So for as far as goods is concerned, Northern Ireland follows EU law. And that has caused problems ever since January. The checks have been very onerous. It's a high frequency border. It's caused some lot of what's called diversion of trade. And the British government has now said that that arrangement is not sustainable and they want it changed. But Georgina Wright, it's also wonderful to have you back on the podcast again. We should also put this in the context of wider UK-EU relations here, that obviously earlier this year we had the real Brexit day when the UK left the single market and the customs union. But relations have not particularly got better or have they got worse? What's your kind of view from it from Paris? Look, I think it really depends who you ask in the EU. The reality is that most people switched off from Brexit long before negotiations were actually over. So now if you talk to people in Paris, talk to people in Berlin, the attention is simply elsewhere. Of course, you've got the team at the Commission whose responsibility it is to make sure the Northern Ireland Protocol is working and the overall trade agreement. They've been watching this closely. They've been worried. They're trying. And this is what you're hearing over and over again from the Commission is we've listened to Northern Ireland. The proposal that are on the table is trying to you know, reduce that pressure on Northern Ireland, making sure that it can you know, receive goods from Great Britain without onerous paperwork, but also that we're protecting our own single market. And I think that's one of the main problems is that people aren't paying attention to the ins and outs. It's very much a team in Brussels. And so the, the question I have is, is going forward, if things do become much more conflictual between the UK and the EU, will EU capitals you know, take a more active interest? Will they start saying things more or are they just going to let Brussels lead? Well, I think that is the key question. So, Peter, let's now look at what Marosekovic has put forward this week, because he put forward this paper that set out a route to getting rid of 80% of those checks um, on goods between going into the island of Ireland. This seems to have been received as going further than some thought they would. Is that fair? Now you've had a chance to go through the details and how much does it speak to what the British want to get to? Well, it's fair to a point, uh, Sebastian. This 80% figure that's been banded around is a clever piece of briefing by the European Commission. When you actually look at the detail, the UK has to do a load of things to get to the 80%. So one of the big fixes, for example, is imagine a lorry going to a supermarket. It's got a thousand products on the back that might be eggs and cheese and fish, etc. The European Union have said that you only need one certificate now if you can prove the origin of all those goods. And all of those goods still need to have all the digital certification to prove that they're UK made and that they're safe and all the rest of it underlying them. So that still means 
even if we embrace the offer of the EU, in order to get into that green channel, companies are going to have to do a lot of work. And remember, this is part of the UK's internal market. This is products going from Birmingham to Belfast. And David Frost actually says, I want it to be as easy to trade between London and Birmingham as London and Belfast. Well, it's nowhere close to that. And of course, it never was going to be because, as we said at the start, all of the goods have to follow EU rules in order to avoid that border north-south. But, you know, they have gone a long way on SPS to EU. But when you look at the detail, there's a lot of catches in there. So, yes, the dreaded sausages. Do you remember those? Those could go into the Northern Ireland if they're clearly labelled, and they could go in not frozen, but they have to remain permanently aligned to EU food rules in order for that to happen. So, you know, there, there are just lots of catches under the bonnet there, and we'll see in this period of negotiation that we're going into whether or not, you know, a satisfactory compromise can be made to remove those frictions or reduce those frictions at the border. It's also worth pointing out that Maris Cefic's paper doesn't address any of the other big issues that the UK requested. So number one, it doesn't address the issue about the ECJ. It doesn't even go there at the European Court having oversight of the deal. It doesn't address this what's known as Article 10 in the protocol, which is a clause that requires any UK state subsidy decision to be referred to the Commission if it cuts across the Northern Ireland goods market, another intolerable impingement on UK sovereignty, according to Brexiteers. It doesn't address David Frost's desire that goods made to UK standards should be able to circulate freely in Northern Ireland alongside those of EU standards, so that, again, the UK internal market, because remember, the UK internal market, which the unionist community feels it's now being, to some degree, cut out of, requires this free circulation of goods just as the EU market does. And what David Frost is saying is we need to rebalance this protocol so that the UK internal market can work more freely. And these proposals go some way to doing that, but they're a long way short objectively from the demands that Frost made in his command paper in July. The Northern Ireland Protocol is a compromise where both sides gave in because, of course, for many EU capitals, they wanted to make sure that, yes, Brexit, you know, that there was a deal with the UK, but that the UK couldn't have a better deal outside of the EU than it does inside the EU. The context now has changed. You know, Brexit has been done um, and the EU, um, you know, many EU publics are looking at what's happening in the UK more broadly. There isn't a massive push for other countries to leave. And so in a sense, you know, whether or not the UK claims whatever happens as a victory or not is not a concern for the EU in the same way that it was when the you know, Northern Ireland Protocol was first negotiated. The question is, are the EU's proposals, as Peter said, are they satisfactory to the UK government? Because I think that's where you might see it become more political and EU capitals say, you know what, this isn't worth it. We've got other things going on and perhaps we need to just come back to this later. I'd say, I also say, you know, for sake of a balance, David Frost would fling a lot of those arguments back at the European Commission and say, we need to protect the integrity of the UK internal market. You need to remember that the Good Friday Agreement cuts both ways. It cuts east-west as well as north-south. We need to respect the unionist community as much as we need the nationalist community, which is, remember, the reason we don't have a north-south border, because it would undermine the Good Friday Agreement. So, you know, David Frost is trying to turn those arguments back on the Commission. I would say you know, that this is a choice that the UK government has made to do a very hard Brexit, to do a very minimalist deal at the expense of Northern Ireland. And in fact, Edwin Poots last year wrote to the British government and said, do a veterinary deal, which aligns our veterinary and animal standards with the, with the European Union as the Swiss do. Otherwise, this isn't going to work. And David Frost and the British government said no. So the British government has 
help create the situation by doing a particular kind of Brexit. Remember, Theresa May said this was a deal that no British prime minister could do. And, and, you know, tacitly, it now looks like Boris Johnson and David Frost agree with her. Well, let's hear from Lord David Frost himself, because as well as the, he, on the EU side, he gave a speech this week where he set out his issues with the Northern Ireland settlement and what he wanted to see change. The problem with the, the protocol at the moment is that EU law is uh, with, with the ECJ uh, as the enforcer of it uh, is applied in Northern Ireland without any sort of democratic process. So that, I think, has to change uh, if we're to find governance arrangements that people can, can live with. Now, Georgina, when you hear that, that is actually not something that Maro Sefcovic talked about when he was looking at reworking the protocol. And of course, when you look at it from the EU's perspective, that's what the ECJ is there for. It's the court that governs all the main treaties of the bloc, and it was why you would have it there. But for Brexiters, that is really a red rag. It's something they don't like. It's one of the reasons they argued for Brexit within the first place. And it feels as if that is where most of the negotiations are going to be. And there's been a lot of talk around around Whitehall this week that some potential way through is getting the so-called Swiss-style option where you add another level of independent arbitration before you get to the ECJ. And practically, you can see why that makes sense. But when you look at it theoretically from the point of view of Lord Frost, then it still means you're still going to have ECJ jurisdiction at the end of the line. Where do you see that particular debate going? So I think Lord Frost has a point here when he says that there's a democracy question that is important if Northern Ireland is going to follow more EU rules and regulations than the rest of the UK, then it needs to have you know, to be consulted on these rules. It needs to know how new rules that will come out of, of Brussels are going to apply to it and have a say in a democratic process. So I think that's important. And I actually think this is something that the EU has heard. You know, Marish Cheshkovich travelling to Northern Ireland, to Belfast, talking to people, and that's something they've taken on on board. This question of, of the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, that's a harder problem to solve really because if you look at Switzerland, Switzerland for years has been saying we you know don't accept the the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. We'd like to set up an independent uh, tribunal, a joint tribunal where you know if there are problems uh, pertaining to our trade relationship, they could be solved by that tribunal. And the EU has said no because actually what that would mean in effect is the European Court of Justice being subject to rulings that come out of this other arbitration panel and the ECJ should be the sole arbiter over EU rules. Now, what could you see? What could be a fudge? Well, clearly, the, the proposal that's on the table right now is not satisfactory to the UK. That's, you know, UK and EU coming together, setting up sort of a panel, trying to discuss it. And if they can't you know, resolve a problem diplomatically, um, then it would get referred to the ECJ. You could see some form of arbitration panel that's a bit more, that has perhaps more power, more of a say. But I think anything that has to do with the interpretation of EU rules will have to involve for the EU some form of kind of oversight from the European Court of Justice. So I guess the question is, can we limit the role of the European Court of Justice? Can we really emphasise the diplomatic resolution process or some other form of jurisdiction? But as you can see, these are tricky questions and it might take quite a while for the UK and the EU to find something that they're both happy with. Well, that's the question now, Peter, isn't it? That they're going to go into these negotiations. How long are they going to last for? And is this all going to be about the ECJ question or is it going to be about trying to reduce the checks even further from what um, the EU has proposed? How long are they going to last for? How long is a piece of string? But, you know, the sort of figures I've heard kicked around two or three weeks. 
remember the EU hasn't really agreed to engage on the EC question, ECJ question at all. I mean, David Frost is adamant that without that, there can't be a resolution. So we'll wait and see whether or not that discussion can be opened. Uh, you know, there's nothing formally on the table there from from the EU side. I think, you know, the Swiss arbitration model, yeah, I mean, to a point, but, you know, yes, you could try and separate out the fact that the ECJ rules on points of EU law, as it would for any court, you know, a British court can ask the ECJ for an opinion about EU law, where a matter of EU law cuts across a UK decision. But the trouble with the, with the Swiss system is that the ECJ sits at the apex, and most of the fights are going to be about whether or not EU law is being properly applied, at which point, if you're applying it back to the European Court of Justice, essentially, then they become the final arbiter. So unless Frost wants to accept that solution as a fig leaf, and remember, the EU doesn't want to go there because it doesn't want to open uh, Article 12 of the protocol, just doesn't want to start renegotiating the protocol. I, I'm sceptical that actually the two sides can find a landing zone on there. You know, uh, and, and if they can't, then I think we get into this, you know, this business of the UK starting to disapply bits of the protocol using Article 16 on the argument that it's caused economic and societal harm. And it's got plenty of stuff it can point to on that. And then we have to see what happens next, because if you're not going to have a border in the Irish Sea, or at least not a fully functioning border in the Irish Sea, and you're not going to have a border north-south, then that raises the question for the rest of the European Union about how safe stuff coming from Ireland into the EU is. And then you get into quite nasty world where the Commission is maybe doing you know, extra market surveillance actions in the Republic of Ireland. And the 27, the, the, main, the 27 EU countries start to feel that essentially the UK is, you know, it's gangster politics. The UK is starting to try to elbow Ireland out of the European Union. And then you're touching a very raw nerve and you might see a stronger response from the EU27 than I think Frost and the British government are buying uh, or expecting because, you know, under the rules, the response would have to be proportionate. It could take a long time. But if this gets nasty quickly, I think, you know, the EU is already starting to stack up slightly more nuclear options. And that's right. And finally, Georgina, that we've seen some reports on Friday that the EU is preparing, you know, a very strong response if we don't get a way through this. Now, there's been lots of talk in Westminster about potentially triggering Article 16, which, as Peter said, would allow parts of, of the protocol to be suspended. And that obviously then starts another long arbitration process. Do you think the UK will go down that road, given the potential likelihood? Or do you think it's more just bluster here? And, do, and what do you think of Peter? Peter's uh, suggestion this could get rather nasty rather quickly. You know, it's very difficult for me to say, especially now sitting in Paris. What I will say is that there is, on the EU side, a willingness to try as much as possible to resolve issues and problems diplomatically. And, you know, the Article 16 is the kind of nuclear option. Um, and I think from the UK government's perspective, there is a question here about can whatever it does on the Northern Ireland Protocol be limited? You know, can it just say, well, this is about the Northern Ireland Protocol, it isn't about everything else? Because what you're sensing in Paris, but you're sensing it in other EU capitals as well, is that Brexit negotiations are bleeding into the bilateral relationship. Those tensions around, uh, you know, constant disagreements, the fact that the UK and the EU say that they want to move on, but they're not, they're not able to because there are these problems. How much is this impacting the broader relationship? You know, we've got the COP26, where we're expecting the UK and the EU and countries around the world to come together and and try and you know put forward solutions to respond to the climate threat. But you've got you know security and defence issues as well. And my fear is that until you know 
unless and until we resolve this Northern Ireland Protocol problem, that it will really kind of hamper the broader relationship between the UK and the EU and the UK and individual member states. And I think that's something that London has to think carefully about, but also the EU. Well, Peter and Georgina, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you'd like, then please subscribe. You know where you can find us, Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you receive your podcast and you'll get the episode every Saturday morning. We also do like those positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarity. And until next week, thank you as always for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.